If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 21. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, as we have just sung, we want to see You for who You are so that we will praise You for who You are. And so, Father, You have been pleased to reveal Yourself to us through Your Word So would you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears, Father, that we could not only be informed, but be transformed through your word and by your spirit. Father, help us to see our Savior, for we pray in his name. Amen. It's hard to believe we're at week 57 and looking back at our history and moving forward in our mission as we go week by week through the book of Acts. Um, I'm sure all of us have said on any number of occasions, while I was on my way to someplace, this happened. I mean, think about the times in your life that you're headed somewhere and things happen on the way. It's true for all of us, isn't it? Very rarely do we make a plan to head somewhere and it's just uneventful between the start and the finish. Well, today's text is going to let us know what happened to Paul as he was on the way to Jerusalem. Now, at first glance and and with a a surface reading, what we've got before us is a travel itinerary uh, listing ports of call and lengths of stay in those various ports. Um, but Luke is, is developing a more profound and indeed ominous theme. Uh, the, the warnings of suffering that await Paul in Jerusalem are, are being amplified. Now, where were we when we were last with Paul last week? Uh, y'all were, uh, from what I understand, with a great message on the third day, of course, Easter Day, Easter Sunday. Uh, but two weeks ago, when we were last with Paul, we were with his farewell speech that was so long and so important, it took us two weeks to cover it, his farewell speech to the Ephesian elders. And you remember that in part one of his speech, he defends himself and his ministry. Um, it was kind of the, the indicative, the statements. Whereas part two, what we looked at two weeks ago, um, was the imperative. Uh, in fact, the title of the sermon was Commanding, Commending and Collaborating. We saw last time that Paul issued commands. He entrusted the elders into the care of the Lord and he wept and he prayed with them. It's that scene on the beach, as it were, in Miletus. Now, given what Paul has said in his farewell address and in view of what he says in all of his letters, that the greatest threats facing the church are the assaults on, as he would write in verse 24 of chapter 20, Assaults on the gospel of the grace of God. So it's no wonder that he commends the elders to God and to the word of his grace. We saw that in verse 32 of chapter 20. Knowing that both the content of the word of God and the atmosphere and the tone of grace serve to protect the church. Paul has been determined to go to Jerusalem. We've already seen hints of that, some direct statements. Now, 
determined to go to Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar? Is there anyone else that we know who was determined to go to Jerusalem? Well, as I've already mentioned, Luke is volume 1 of Luke and Acts is volume 2 of Luke. And, and Paul is following Jesus. He's coming after Jesus. He heard, as it were, when he met Jesus, the call that if anyone would come after him, he is to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he mentions his desire to go to Jerusalem often and face what could not but be considered a dire destiny there. Literally, we see he fixed his face firmly. It's an allusion there in Luke 9 to the suffering servants, flinty resolve to endure shame and pain for God's sake. Now, Paul, the servant, the bondservant of God's servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, has that same resolve. He's setting his face like a flint. Now, although he has been determined to go to Jerusalem, the journey, as we see thus far, has been slow and has taken some twists and turns. Paul had to exercise what John in the book of Revelation says several times. He had to exercise patient endurance. Patient endurance. Isn't that a good word for us, too? Because we're all on a journey. And that journey requires patient endurance. Patient endurance. But we've now at last come to the place where Paul will, for the most part, take the direct route to Jerusalem. It, it's not nonstop. There's a few stops along the way and he'll go from a smaller ship to a bigger ship. But for all intents and purposes, he's on a direct route to Jerusalem. And so for the next few minutes, we're going to unpack and explore Luke's travelogue of Paul's journey by sea to Jerusalem for the purpose of growing in our understanding and application of the informing and transforming Word of God. And here in Luke's careful record, we will observe Paul experiencing two major things on the way to Jerusalem. What happened to Paul on the way to Jerusalem? Two major things. He'll experience Christian fellowship and he'll experience Christian disagreement. Christian fellowship and Christian disagreement. The first encourages him as he continues moving forward, but the second doesn't discourage him from moving forward in his mission, his obedience to his calling. Join with me as I go ahead and read all 16 verses of our text, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and we went and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed, 
and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying there, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Christian fellowship. Um, this text has two bookends. And this is bookend number one. They depart from Miletus. Now the majority of action, at least what the Holy Spirit through Luke wants us to know, takes place in three cities on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea between the departure from Miletus at the beginning and their arrival in Jerusalem at the end. Now, as, as chapter 21, excuse me, chapter 20 ends and, and chapter 21 begins, um, it says in verse 1, and when we had parted, when we had parted, uh, the NIV translation is interesting. It says, when we had torn ourselves away from them. Remember the scene? They didn't want to depart. They were together in prayer. It was a tearing away. It was a temporary separation that one day would be reunited, but it was a tearing away. And all of us have those kind of relationships that it's painful and difficult when in God's sovereignty and the circumstances of life, there has to be a, a, a parting. And, and, and here it is. And Luke is, is careful with the detail. He, he, he mentions that in this ship, they, they passed by Cyprus uh, on their way, this, uh, this island, which was this, the site of Paul's first missionary campaign that we read back in chapter 13. So we're going to look briefly at fellowship in three locations, in Tyre, in Ptolemais, and in Caesarea. In Tyre, and we see that at the end of verse 3 to verse 6, we read they spent seven days. And in this short week, you see the bonds of Christian fellowship forged. Look how this ends. Uh, we, we, we knelt down on the beach and we prayed and we said farewell to one another. It's almost reminiscent of, of what we saw in Miletus. It's a visible picture, a, a, a solemn prayer of committal. These bonds had been forged in just seven days. Bonds, because they were united in Christ. The commentator William Barclay says this, 
that the man who is in the family of the church has friends all over the world. Isn't that true? Paul and his companions, they're, they're in another town, and yet they, they have Christian fellowship. The Navy has sent me all over the world, and I remember one time being in Lisbon, Portugal, and I um, was there um, serving to prepare for a NATO exercise, and, and I ended up running into a, a colonel in the Portuguese Air Force who I'd met years ago in Virginia, and he said, are you doing anything Sunday night? And I said, no. He said, come with me to church. And the next thing I know, I'm in somewhere in Lisbon. I'm the only American. It's all in Portuguese. There's a unity and a community. And it got really nervous, Aaron, when he then asked me to speak. And he translated. And the same thing happened when I've been in Korea, too. And I'm sure you guys have the same thing. Christian friendships are all around the world because they're friendships in Christ. In Christ. <laughs> Commenting on this as well, William Willimon says this the church has become a countercultural global network of communities caring for their own subversive missionaries who are now traveling to and fro throughout the empire. Just in this town of Tyre, Paul is being supported in his calling and in his work. And we see in verse 7 in the town of Ptolemais. In one day there, nonetheless, we greeted the brothers and stayed with them. They didn't check into the Ptolemais Visitors Bureau. Hey, what's to see? No, they sought out Christian fellowship. In one day, bonds were beginning to be made. And then in verses 8 through 14, we see they spent many days in Caesarea, the seaside capital of the province of Judea. The location, you may recall, were Peter and met with Cornelius. It's a magnificent city built by Herod the Great to serve as the port of Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem, of course, is inland. But if you want to take a, 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 a ship to Jerusalem, you've got you to hit the port. And this is the major port for Jerusalem. And notice how the time in Caesarea ends. The narrative account ends with what? A heartfelt conversation. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. There's an emotionally intimate and intense time together. After many days, nonetheless, the Christians in Caesarea and Paul and his missionary band have united because of Christ. So what do we see here in the front and center of Paul's travels? Christian hospitality. Most of you know that that word means literally the love of strangers. The love of strangers. And indeed, as Paul went into these various places and sought out Christian fellowship and was indeed welcomed he, he enjoyed hospitality, love of strangers. Now, I'm going to say something here about hospitality um, because we see it in other letters and in the Gospels as well. You know, in one sense, it's easy to love people you don't know, right? In one sense, a Christian traveling through town it's easy to host them for a meal. It's easy to put them overnight at your house. And that is a great and wonderful thing, and we should be doing that. But, you know, it's, it's easy. 
it's, I think, easier than the hard, close, intimate relationships that have been built over time. It, and, and in one sense, if hospitality is love of strangers, at one level, we're all strangers to one another, right? Because we're all unique, we're all different. There's so much more to get to know about the other person. And so Christian hospitality can be that stranger who you just met, but it can also be that person that sat around you in the church for a few years. And Christian hospitality, believe it or not, needs to be even exercised among people in their own home. Love. Love. Never, our text is saying, never miss an opportunity by fellowship and prayer to strengthen fellow Christians who, in one way or another, are facing hard trials and hard, hard things. You never know what somebody's going through, what they're facing. Pray with them. Encourage them. Strengthen them. So on the way to Jerusalem, Paul experienced warm Christian fellowship. But as our text indicates, he also experienced something else, Christian disagreement. Now, whereas the Christian fellowship that Paul experienced served to strengthen and encourage him to continue to move forward, the Christian disagreement that he experienced nonetheless didn't discourage him to discontinue his journey to Jerusalem. Now, we're going to see the disagreement among men, but we're not going to see the contradiction of God's word. If you see, at first glance, if you were listening, you may have heard these promptings of the Spirit as Luke records them, and it sounds like that they are in direct conflict with one another. Paul says the Spirit said, go to Jerusalem, and these others are saying, by the Spirit, don't go. You know, the, the, the question is, is not, did Paul disobey the Spirit? No, the, the, the question is, was the Spirit contradicting himself? And of course, Luke, the careful writer, no, the Spirit is not, not contradicting himself. Uh, Luke overall believed Paul to be in the right to go to Jerusalem. Remember the decision back in chapter 19, verse 21, and the compulsion we saw in the last chapter, in chapter 20, verse 22, um, we read, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Again, what are we to make of verse 4? Earlier in verse 11. Christian disagreement shows up really in two instances. The first instance is in Tyre. Verse 4. Uh, Luke summarizes kind of. Uh, and through the spirit. They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Well what on earth does that mean? I think John Stott says it well. Luke's statement is a condensed way of saying. That the warning was divine while the urging was human. After all, the Spirit's word to Paul combined the compulsion to go with a warning of the consequences. When Paul knew 
was headed to Jerusalem, the Spirit not only said go, but the Spirit said you're going to face difficulty, distress, danger, suffering. The Spirit is united in this. Now sometimes the counsel of friends, in fact always, in one sense, the counsel of our friends is filtered through the grid of their fears and their concerns for our safety. And on one hand, that is commendable. It's an expression, as it were, of love. But because it's filtered through the grid of of their fears and their concerns, it, it can be not good guidance. It can be misguidance. And so the first instance is in Tyre. But there's another instance of disagreement in Caesarea, and we see that in verses 12 through 14. And let's take a close look at what, what takes place. What sparks the disagreement? Well, it's the prophecy of Agabus. It's prophecy in action. It is, as it were, a visible word. And as I mentioned earlier, Ezekiel and, and Isaiah and Jeremiah, at times God spoke through an action. Of course, the action had to be interpreted, but, but nonetheless, it's an acted prophecy. And in this, it underscores how Paul's treatment, though not identical to Jesus, nevertheless is going to reflect suffering. He's going to be bound, as it were, and handed over. But interestingly, the fulfillment would occur in a surprising way, as we will see that the Roman troops take Paul into protective custody, as it were, to prevent him from being assaulted by the violent mobs of the Jews. Isn't that ironic? That the Roman civil government is once again going to step in to protect Paul and further the advance of the gospel by protecting Paul, as it were, from his own people. Now, how do the people respond to this prophecy? What is their response? Well, with tender affection, the believers plead with Paul not to go. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And the, the urge there is, a, is an affectionate pleading that's, that's ongoing. They want to preserve their beloved apostle from physical harm and and possibly death. So how does Paul respond? They've responded and now it's time for Paul to respond. Then Paul answered, verse 13, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Yes, Paul has got a self-forgetting commitment to the cause of Christ. But Paul is human. And here with these words, Paul opens his heart. Paul is vulnerable. Paul, it's okay to display his emotions. Why? Because Paul is absolutely secure in Christ. He can open his heart. You know, isn't that the case for all of our relationships? You know, I I like the expression, you know, the fine china of our hearts, right? Some of us, me, at times handle the fine china of people's hearts, probably not in a gentle way. And that china breaks. 
Paul opens up his heart. Vulnerable words. He reminds them, I am not... I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's drawing attention to Jesus. He's drawing attention to the suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus is among the highest privileges. Remember when the apostles in chapter 5 counted it that they would be worthy to suffer, to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Remember Paul's conversion and his calling in chapter 9. We read, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's Paul's calling. To proclaim Christ, to suffer for Christ. So the people have spoken, including Luke, we and the people, the people and we. And Paul has spoken and now How do the people respond? And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. In devout resignation, they realize they're unable to persuade him otherwise. They drop the issue. Paul has resisted this. He's been vulnerable in his words. He's been affectionate. He's pointing everyone to Christ and they're not able to persuade him. Uh, Literally, the text says, they became quiet. They stopped their argument. They ceased. And what did they say? Let the will of the Lord be done. It's clear that these Christians were not shocked and offended that Paul resisted their advice. Rather, they were only saddened. Because these Christians now realize we've got to surrender to God's sovereign authority. Is this not an echo of Jesus' prayer in the garden of submission to the Father? He was like us, the writer to the Hebrews says, what, in every way except without sin? Father, if there's any way that you can be just and the justifier, is there another way than than me going to the cross? Yet not my will, but your will be done. That's what we prayed. Your will on earth as it is in heaven. We're learning here that suffering for the right reason, for the Lord's sake, is the key to being determined to finish the course, to finish the race. Oswald Chambers says something interesting. Who And Oswald Chambers, some of you may know, actually taught across the river at God's Bible College years ago. Oswald Chambers said this, to choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very good thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. The will of God. Let the will of the Lord be done. But also, it's it's explicit with the hospitality, the the fellowship. It's, It's implicit here, but there is love. 
love in the midst of disagreement, they are going to part ways. But nonetheless, love one another. There's love. Okay, we realize we can't persuade him. We ceased. We dropped the matter. We, we, we stopped. And we resigned ourselves that the will of the Lord is what has to be done. The love of God. You know, Jesus defines love as obedience to the commandments of God. Absolutely. He says that in 1 John. We read it in 1 John 5. That if we love God, we will obey his commands. And God's law, Jesus says, could be summed up by loving God and loving neighbor. And and remember, Jesus speaks of a new commandment. We read that in John 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. What's new about the commandment? To love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also love one another. Because now, finally, we've got the motivation. And we've got the, the, as it were, the ability now to actually love people because Jesus has loved us. I think one of the reasons I have a hard time loving other people is I'm not continually reminding myself of the love that God has for me in Christ. A new command I give you. You know, you see love here in this disagreement. They're offering advice with humility. They're being open to being contradicted. They're open to a discussion. It's not a one-way discussion. When Paul, you know, defends the gospel, and we see that in, in In Galatians, we see that in Acts. When Paul defends the gospel, he may not seem humble or loving. But Paul knows that it would not be loving to give in to other gospels, to distortions of the truth. It would not be loving. Paul instructs Timothy and instructs Titus to be, sometimes to be loving to someone is to ignore them. That is really strange. But it's there in God's word as it unfolds situations that the most loving thing that could be done is to to stay away from someone. Now, with hopes of restoration, absolutely. But here you see love, loving God, loving one another. And now we arrive at the end, the second bookend, the arrival in Jerusalem. He's escorted, he arrives at the home of Nason, a warm reception. What's Paul got to look forward to? Well, in just a few verses, in verse 36, here's what the crowd will say. Away with him. Away with him. Do you think Paul, the human, needed to be strengthened and encouraged to handle that kind of welcome? Absolutely. Absolutely. So why did we just spend a few minutes reading God's word, listening to God's word, being read and studying God's word? Well, not only so that we could grow in our understanding of God's word, but grow in our application of God's word. And so what do we take away from what on first glance could just be considered a history lesson? 
and put into practice in our lives and the ministry of this church? Well, very briefly, Christian fellowship, and we see it in the hospitality and in the prayers. We see humility and love on display. You see, pride is natural to all of us. Humility is supernatural. And so what you see in this Christian fellowship is people humbled by the grace of the gospel and therefore able to love one another and welcome one another. Christian fellowship and and second, Christian disagreement. Christian disagreement. My friends, here on earth, we're going to disagree. God's word gives us and God's spirit gives us what we need to disagree and not hurt each other. To disagree and maybe drop the issue or maybe to disagree and recognize that we've just got to part ways for the, for the sake of Christian unity. They appeal to the will of God and there's humility and love on display. It's in the fellowship, yes, it's even in the disagreement. Amazing. My friends, we're on the way. We're not on the way to the earthly Jerusalem, but we are most certainly on the way by faith in Christ to the heavenly Jerusalem. And on the way... We're going to face suffering, all of us. It's appointed. We cannot avoid it. We're following our Savior, right? And on the way, by God's grace, we will also be in the company of others who humbly love us. And we humbly love them. Let's pray. Our great God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, that your word is living and active. And it's just not a record of what has taken place in the past. It is guidance for how we are to move forward in our mission, in our calling. Oh, Father, we thank you for showing us a couple of things. Of course, there were many, but at least a couple of things that happened to Paul on his way to Jerusalem. Father, as we are on our way individually, as we are on our way as a church to the Jerusalem from above, from the Jerusalem to come, Father, help us to enjoy sweet Christian fellowship. And help us, Father, in humble dependence upon you. Learn more and more how to disagree in a manner that pleases you and encourages our neighbor. For we pray in Jesus' name.